Our reading is from Thessalonians, uh, the first book, and it's chapter 5, verses 16 to 24. And it's on page 1188. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your eternal and unchanging word. And Lord, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you work your word into our lives. So we invite you now, speak through me, pierce our ears, make us a people for your own possession, Lord. Amen. Well, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians makes it clear that they'd been having a pretty torrid time. There's a lot about how difficult things are for them. And so Paul writes some deeply practical instructions for Christian living. And at one level, it's nothing very impressive. There are no great visions or anything like that. It's just, for verse 1, We instructed you how to live in order to please God. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Well, come on, Paul. I mean, I expect something a bit more dynamic, you know. Um, 4.11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. Encourage one another, 5 verse 11, and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Yes, I I get that, but you know, shouldn't there be something more exciting? Respect your leaders, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Well, well, nothing very earth-shattering about that, is there? True, the Thessalonians had been worrying about the fact that some of their number had died, so they needed a bit of reassurance about eternal life. And Paul does write a piece of stirring rhetoric to boost them about that. 4 verse 16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Well, that's more like it, thank you. But then straight back to the business of everyday living. You know, all we need to do is just keep plugging away at living Christ in our everyday lives. But it turns out that living as a Christian day by day is rather more of a deal than we might have thought. In verse 16, where our reading started. Be joyful always. Now, one can hardly say anything more offensive 
to someone who has just lost a child or their life partner, to someone who has been unfairly accused and tortured, thrown into a dark dungeon, disgraced and bleeding. Telling them to rejoice is adding insult to injury. Always rejoice indeed. What are you thinking of, Paul? Jesus himself wept on occasion. Awaits us, Paul. Read my next verse. Pray continually. Do you know what prayer is, says Paul? It's not trying to get something out of God. It's the aligning of our will with his. Oh yes, it's true. Prayer changes things. But far more importantly than that, prayer changes us. So whenever we find circumstances where joy is desperately hard, the first thing we must do is pray. Don't be tempted to stop. Keep working away at it until you are able to, verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Where is God in your difficult situation? Because he is there somewhere. Hasn't he promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? Doesn't his word say that God works all things together for good for those that love him? So somehow this disaster that you're going through is capable of being transformed into a means of grace and glory. How is that going to happen? And you will look at it You've mostly been there, I expect. I know I have. And you think, how can there be any conceivable good in this plight? Verse 18 continues, For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Oh my word, that's very difficult, isn't it? Does it mean that whatever happens to you is God's desire... Or does it mean that even if it isn't God's desire, God still wants you to thank him for it? In other words, does that little word this refer back to the all circumstances, this is God's will for you? That would have to mean that God actually wanted this calamity to fall upon me. That God had engineered circumstances such that those Christian servants of his would be tortured or whatever. Can that be right? Or does the this refer to the fact that God's will for me is that I should give thanks even though the circumstances are such as no one should be expected to bear at all, let alone be grateful for. And we do need to get our understanding right on this because otherwise we're going to have fine difficulty praying to getting our mind aligned with God's. Now, if it's true that God is all-powerful, then yes, he could have rescued me from the situation I'm in. And he hasn't chosen to do so. So to that extent, my problem is, is yes, it's his will. But if that's the full story, then God has to take responsibility for all the sin in the world. He didn't put a stop to humanity's rebellion, though he could have done so, so he willed it. There's a difference between what God actually wants and what God allows The difference between his direct creative will and his permissive will. He didn't stop Adam's fall. 
And that was because there was something even more wonderfully good than the bad unleashed in the Garden of Eden. And that was his plan of redemption, whereby his son would suffer to wipe out sin and restore humanity. Where the inestimable riches of mankind's free will would come to choose God rather than self. That was so precious in God's sight, rather than our being little created robots, hallelujah, praise God, because there isn't any choice, that he would give humanity free will, and then he knew what would happen. And he knew that his plan of salvation through his son would mean that humanity would say, oh yes, Lord, with all my failings, all my sin, all my weakness, yes, thank you, Lord. I want to be yours. That was so precious. He allowed the bad because he could turn it to good, to grace. God allows the horror because he turns it into redemption. Hebrews 12 verse 2, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God's true will for us is that we join his Son in becoming part of the redemption of the world, soaking up the pain of the world and giving out the grace of God. Every time circumstances smash us down to the ground and we find Jesus in his agony there deeper than we are. Every time as we weep, we refuse to accept that Satan has the last word. We are filling up in our flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Colossians 1 verse 24. We are bringing his gospel to bear in our generation, in our circumstances. And never mind if nobody understands the sacrifice you are making. Never mind if you are in your dungeon and nobody ever knows the grace that's going on there. Because the powers and the principalities tremble. Because all their efforts have served only to glorify God through you. Now you may not be thrown into a dungeon, but you have your own prisons, your own difficulties, your own heartaches. And in every one, there is the opportunity... To refuse to stay with the darkness. To dig deeper and find Christ there. In the mud. Holding you up on his shoulders. So once through agonized continual prayer you have worked through to Jesus. You will have found how God has turned your very pain itself into a means of grace. And then yes, you will be joyful with the joy of heaven and always rejoice always in verse 16 doesn't mean a facile easy unwavering happiness it means that there is no situation anywhere ever where God is absent and his desire is that you should find him the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his commentary on Psalm 91 wrote it is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. 
Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honour. Death is his gain. No evil, in the strict sense of the word, can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who is in such a case. He is secure where others are in peril. He lives where others die. Now only the Holy Spirit can work that truth into a man or woman. Only the Holy Spirit is the fire that powers the Christian engine. Difficult circumstances will breed discouragement and doubt, won't they? And it's all too easy to let them put out the Spirit's fire, verse 19. You have to make a conscious choice not to allow that to happen. Go back to the word of God and the testimony, the truth spoken out by God in scripture and through his people, the teaching you have received. Don't treat prophecies, that's God's perspective, with contempt, verse 20, by giving more credence to what you think you are experiencing than what God is saying about it. What does God say about the fiery trial that you are going through? Instead of just accepting the word verdict of the world, the flesh and the devil, which comes at us so strongly when things are difficult, everything is screaming at you. Oh, you shouldn't put up with that. They shouldn't treat you like that. It's unfair. Self-pity engulfs you. It's coming at you from all directions because you're, it's not fair and they shouldn't have behaved like that to me. Entitlements, anger, pride, all those things coming, bubbling up at you from every direction. Now that's trying to get you to listen to them. That's quenching the spirit. Instead, you go back to the prophetic word, the Bible word. Test everything. What are my reactions here? Is this how God sees the situation? What would Jesus be doing in the circumstances I'm in? Hold on to the good and avoid every kind of evil, verse 22. Reject the lies. Believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. Because we're not ignorant of Satan's devices, are we, brothers and sisters? He is doing everything he can to mess you up, to rob you of the peace which is your birthright from the Prince of Peace. But God himself, the God of peace, will sanctify us through and through if we will only let him. So that, verse 23, our whole spirit, soul and body may be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because whatever your crisis is, it cannot last forever. It is going to end in heaven, if not before. Because although you are weak and feeble, the one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. So maybe Paul didn't give us bells and whistles and impressive spiritual fireworks to boost our Christian walk. But in telling us about what Watchman Nee called the normal Christian life, Paul has taken us right down into the darkest depths of human experience and shown us the glory of God buried there. No dungeon is too deep, no darkness too profound, even there, no, especially there, the God of all comfort is living and active. And that, Paul, is glorious. To know that nothing, nothing 
can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Let's pray.